Your theme, could we just spend a, you know, half an hour on on a Sunday, then just talk about being saved by grace. And look over in Ephesians 1, we'll pick this up in verse 3, Ephesians 1 verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the One He loves. You know, my first point is God is gracious. And I think we really need to understand this. God is gracious. That's who He is. It's not a reaction to us. Grace isn't something that God looks at us and suddenly goes, what do I need to do? Who do I need to be to help these people? That's not who God is. Before we ever existed, and I can't even imagine sort of what this means when God pre-exists us and what all was going on, but before we ever existed, God was gracious. That's who He is. And what's so important about that is to understand there's nothing we can do to make God more gracious. There's actually nothing we can do to make God less gracious. God is gracious because that's who He is. And so it's not about us, even though as we see here, we are the the prime recipients of His grace. His grace brings us blessing upon blessing. His grace changes our lives. But see, it's it's not because of us. It's because of Him. It's who He is. God is gracious. And I want to just look at a couple of verses, kind of fanning through the, uh, the Old Testament, coming to the New. But the idea was this. We see a gracious God. Whenever you see God's heart because of what He's doing or what He's saying, you see a gracious God. And and this gracious thing doesn't change. It's who He is. So let's go. We're going to turn back into Genesis chapter 2. And, you know, the Bible was pretty much completed almost 2,000 years ago. And that makes it history. But actually, because the Bible describes God, and God is unchanging, every time we understand how God dealt with people, even though it's history as we read it, it's prophecy. Because God is unchanging, and if that's how God was with this person, then that's how God can be with me. God is unchanging. So we read the Bible, we read about God dealing with people, and what we're really seeing is how God deals with us. God is unchanging. Look in Genesis chapter 2, just verse 8 and 9. It said, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there He put the man He had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and and good for food. In the middle of the garden were, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I just want to say this because this is God. Uh, he hasn't... Let's see here. Yes, he's, he's uh, made man just in the paragraph before, okay? But he's planted a garden. 
And He's going to put man in it. And that's His plan. That's what the garden's for. It's for man. That's God's heart. I've made man. Now I'm going to bless him. I'm just going to give him something awesome. I'm going to give him the Garden of Eden. Who'd like to live in the Garden of Eden? I mean, if it was a holiday destination, we'd all want to go. I mean, this is awesome! In fact, I think for most, when we think about holiday destinations, it's kind of like Eden. That's kind of what we're thinking. But that's God's heart. Look a little further, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. See, that's God's heart. He made man. He's looking at man. Okay, there's something missing. Uh, go a little further. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the births of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Okay, well, we don't, I don't think that's rocket science for us to agree with. Okay, man was lonely, and guess what? It was nice to see dog, but dog just didn't cut it. Man needed something more than dog. And see, God, who knows exactly what we need, man needs woman. And so it goes on to say, in the, in the second part of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, it took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his, his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And this is about as much perfection in the world as we can ever imagine. And what do we have here? We have God giving them a garden, but in the garden is the tree of life. So God gave the gift of life. And in the garden was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave man free choice. And then it says, God made woman for man. God gave man fellowship. And see, look, this, this is pretty awesome, isn't it? That's how everything's set up. So at this moment in time, if this was all there was to the story, you know, it would be pretty awesome. But with that free will, there came a caveat, because man could choose to do what God wanted, or he could choose not to. And with everything there was in the garden, there was only one rule. Don't eat from the fruit of this one tree. That was it. And I don't know how many days, months, years it took, I don't know. But at some point, that rule became sort of an obsession. And at some point, they decided, well, we're going to break that rule and we're going to eat from the tree. And, and, and God had said very clearly to them, the day that you eat from this tree, you will die. I want us to see something. Look over in chapter 3, verse 8. God now comes into the garden. And from the story we can see that God was taking some kind of physical form, some kind of visible form. It says they heard God coming in the garden. I don't know what that meant exactly, but they heard Him coming. And it says when the man and woman heard Him coming, they hid themselves. So we see verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? 
He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. But see, what's interesting is, God had said to them, when you eat from this tree, you will die. Death is separation. When they ate from the tree, they were filled with shame and guilt, and it separated them from each other. So they made a little deal with each other. Let's get some fig leaves here. Let's make a little clothing. But you know, then when they heard God coming, they looked down at their fig leaves and they're like, huh, how are we going to explain this? And they felt again guilt and shame. And they hid themselves. See, this wasn't a pronouncement of judgment. When God said you will die, it wasn't because He was going to come and kill them. They would die because their guilt and their shame separated them from God. Their own guilt, their own shame. They turned away from God. But do you see God's heart? God could have just gone, well, that's it for this creation. I'll just leave them. Let's go, let's go find some, let's make a new planet. Let's, let's make a new garden. Let's try this again. I think actually if he was going to give free, I think we know this about free will. When you have free will, you exercise it. You will make a choice. But I want us to think, the heart of God? God said, where are you? He called them out into His presence. And they came out, and you know they were intimidated, they were embarrassed, they felt shame, they felt guilt. Look what happens in verse 21. After going through a little bit of discipline, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It wasn't that, you know, God wasn't into cottons and, uh, you know, materials and uh, He was really into leather and fur. I mean, that's not really what it's about. It's about God giving them clothing that He approved. And when God clothed them and said, you don't need to be ashamed wearing this in front of me. You can feel comfortable. They could. It cost, though, the life of an animal. Blood was shed so that they could be clothed. But see, we see again the heart of God. Look in chapter 4. Cain and Abel are born. We'll pick up this in the middle of, uh, of chapter, uh, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now we have no real full explanation why there was a difference. But for some reason God was pleased with one and not pleased with the other. Could be the same thing. He wasn't pleased with the clothing made from the plants as opposed to the clothing made from the fur because that required a a sacrifice of life. I don't know. That makes to me some sense. But look at God's heart to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Do you see the heart of God? Adam and Eve are hiding. God calls them out. They're feeling embarrassed. God covers them. Cain is struggling in his heart about feeling maybe God will never accept me. And God says to him, you know what? This can change. You can be accepted too. Don't be downcast. And then we know the rest of the story. Cain took his brother out and killed him. 
But though the Bible, Old Testament law, teaches eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, God didn't kill Cain. I mean, God was the judge and jury of the Cain case. And He he didn't kill Cain. Again, this, this is showing the graciousness of God. See, God isn't vindictive. God isn't like, I'm so glad you sinned because I really wanted to hurt you. Oh, I'm so glad you turned away from me because I was tired of fellowshipping you too. That's not God. God is looking at us going, I want you to be as close as possible. I want you to feel as comfortable with me as possible. I want you to feel great around me. Come to me. That's God's plea. You know, in in Genesis chapter 6, God looks at at man's wickedness. Verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that He'd made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then through Noah, He brought salvation. God didn't give up on everybody. God was looking to save And see, that is our God. He is full of grace. That's His heart. He wants to save. Look a little further in chapter 12. God's heart, He chooses Abraham. God wants to bless. Verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, what's God want to do? Bless. Who does He want to bless? All the peoples of the earth. And He chose one person through whom to make it happen, Abraham. And he says, through you, know, through you, of course, through Abraham, Jesus would come. And then through Jesus, truly, all the nations would be blessed. In uh, Genesis 18, there's the story of God telling Abram, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And they have this discussion. And Abram is kind of arguing with God, what if there's 50 righteous people, 40, 30, down to 10? Now this is like two twin cities. And and God said, if there's ten, I'll spare the city. But there wasn't ten. But the point is, God wanted to. We have to understand this. This is His heart. Go over to Exodus 34. You know, the reason I spent more time in Genesis than I will by far through the rest of the Old Testament was simply a point. The book of Genesis establishes the character of God. It really shows us what God wants for us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to have a great life here on earth. And, of course, He will reveal later, He wants us to be with Him eternally. But look in in Exodus 34. This is talking about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. 
And look in verse 4, it says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with them and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, at the giving of the law, we have a picture of God who only wants the best for everyone. You know, there's a word that's been coined. It's called omnibenevolent. It means all-loving. But the word benevolent is interesting in its root because benevolent means good will. That's who God is for us. He only wants what's best for us. The creator of the universe looks down at Roger Spence and simply says, I want what's best for Roger. What is absolutely best for him. And you know, we could read through the Old Testament And it's so funny because sometimes people say, yeah, the God of the Old Testament was so, you know, He was thunderbolts and lightning. It was all about judgment. If you read through the Old Testament, do you know how many times God just graciously called His people back? Do you know how many times He had to knock on their hearts and send them a prophet and say, please come back to me. Please come back into the covenant with me. I mean, it's just time after time after time. One verse we all know well. Look at it. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, and we'll pick it up in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Israel had sinned many times by this. They had been unfaithful to God many times. And God had brought them back and they left again. Brought them back, they left again. Brought them back, left again. Now He actually allowed them to be completely dispersed. First Israel was taken captive, then Judah. And now just a remnant is going to be called back to Judah. But look what it says here in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Okay, we're done with our little Old Testament overview. What do we see about the heart of God? What does God want for His people? I mean, yes, He chose Israel. He chose Abraham. But His view was always to bless everyone. And He gave them the law. But sadly, they didn't understand the law. The law was supposed to push them back towards Him. The law was supposed to make a point to them. You can't be righteous without Me. It was supposed to convict them of their sin and turn them back to God. It was 
supposed to remind them through sacrifice that you something has to be offered. Of course, it was all symbolic of what was going to come in Jesus. You know, John chapter 1 says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about what does that mean for us? Look over in Romans chapter 8. God is gracious. I I just want us to, to accept that with everything. That's who He is. If you turn in your heart in prayer to God and you don't pray to a gracious God, you're not praying to our God. He's a gracious God. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's a gracious God. My second point is grace comes through Jesus Christ. Look in Romans 8. You know, some insightful people in the time prior to Jesus had some understanding about what was going to happen, but really didn't see the full picture. How could they understand that God would send His Son to die on a cross? How could they understand that the Creator of the universe, in all of His righteousness, would actually humble Himself and become a servant and take human form. How could they imagine it? It is so incredible. And look at Romans 8, 1-4. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You know, this is the promise for every Christian. There's no condemnation. When you accept the grace of God, when you become a disciple of Jesus, there's no condemnation. Is that not amazing? There's there's like no condemnation. No one can condemn you. Awesome. I mean, I don't know what what more to say. Thank you. It's incredible. You know, if you're feeling condemned right now for some reason, somehow, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're in His grace, you shouldn't. Something's not working. You shouldn't be feeling that. You should be sitting here today, no condemnation. None. Amen? Amen. Let's hear another no. Look over in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll pick this up in the middle of verse 16. There's so much to be read, but sorry I have to select. But 1 John 4 verse 16, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. 
In this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In Christ, there's no punishment. I mean, are we, are we feeling something here, okay? You know, there, there's no condemnation and there's no punishment. Now, if there's no punishment, what should happen to our fear? Should disappear, right? This statement of love of God should make our fear disappear. This offering of Jesus for us should, should make our sense of condemnation disappear. God says, I'm not condemning you, I'm loving you. Accept my sacrifice for you. See, we can't offer the sacrifice that takes away our sins. Only God can. When, when you forgive, the one doing the forgiving makes the sacrifice. God had to sacrifice so we could be not condemned. Wow. Another thing that comes through God's grace is commendation. Look over in just Matthew 25, verse 40. Matthew 25, verse 40. In this parable, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. He's talking about the final judgment. And looking over at the sheep, they've already been separated, okay? They're separated by virtue of who they are. Either you're a sheep or a goat in this parable, okay? The goats just did what they wanted to. The sheep surrendered and followed the one shepherd. They're in the right group. The sheep are in a good place. And so the sheep are being blessed. And, and there's some really kind things being said. And, and in verse 34 it says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Wow. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, it's amazing enough to believe that there'll be no punishment in Christ and no condemnation in Christ. But that's sort of a negating of what we deserve. Now we're talking about bonus. We're talking about God commending us. And see, whether the goats did good things or not, we don't know anything about it. Because where they were going, commendation doesn't matter. But where the sheep were going, commendation does. And we see this principle, we'll talk about just a little bit in the last point. We see this principle in the Scripture. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Now praise Jesus that they were qualified to be a servant. But that was directed to a servant of God. A person like you or me. Someone who simply did what God showed them to do. And God said, well done. Bonus. You know, there's some other bonuses here. And there's many of them. But let's just look at a verse that summarizes 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You know, we have promises... We who've received no condemnation and will receive no punishment have received promises, extra ones. Again, bonus. Do you see what I'm saying? And the, the New Testament's full of them. These blessings from God. And so it's, it's important for us to understand God simply wants to give us the most unbelievable, best life possible. That's it. And, and if God, if, if we're not smiling, if we're not feeling it, we've got to look deeper into how that grace was given to us. You know, I talked about in Romans 8. Let's just go back there for a moment. Romans 8 helps us understand, you can say, the channel of God's grace, of how He made this happen. And hopefully as we read this, we realize how much it costs God to offer us no condemnation. How much it costs God to offer us no punishment. I'll read it again, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Jesus came as a sacrifice for us. And it says here that in, that, in Him being on the tree He condemned sin and sinful man. Because if you're going to receive the benefit of the cross, you've got to admit that your sin put Him there. You can't receive the benefit of the cross without taking responsibility for the cross. The cross is what it cost God to save me. That's, that's the price tag of our salvation. 
And God was willing to pay it. And though I don't believe it was a like a happy moment on the cross, Hebrews 12 talks about, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. I mean, even as God was doing this, what was God saying on the cross? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The most unjust action that has ever taken place in the history of this planet is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the most unjust action. Because the righteous, perfect Son of God, tested in every way, and we know how He was tested, because we've been tested and failed in those areas, we, we, we know how He was tested. He was tested and He passed. He continued. He, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And He offered a sacrifice. And, but we have to admit something. The cross defines my need for God. The cross defines actually the terribleness of my sin. But the cross at that same moment, the same moment of condemning sin and sinful man, did something much more glorious, something the angels were shouting about. The cross paid the price for our sin and became the source of grace for us to understand. If we look what happened, the perfect Son of God on the cross, what did God do? As Jesus was going through the trial, as Jesus was beaten and suffering, as Jesus was hung on the cross, what did God do to stop it? Nothing. Nothing. See, when God says, I won't punish you, how do you know that's true? Look at the cross. I mean, if God, if you can look at the cross and go, God did nothing. Now, you know, sometimes people talk about God turning His back on Jesus or something. I don't picture it that way. I picture God being full on, painfully suffering with His Son. Just wishing there'd been another way, but there was no other way. In fact, He knew there was no other way before He made us. Now, we have a God who's willing to pay the price for grace. And this grace comes through Jesus Christ. He says here, it's the law of the Spirit of life set me free. Look over in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. How does the law of the Spirit set us free? James chapter 2, 12 and 13. It says here, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You know, we have such a negative aversion to the word judged. That we, we, we respect, judge, I'm not going to be judged, what does it mean judge? It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of love, the law of the Spirit, the message of the cross is mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that's a law I want to be judged by. 
That, that's the one I want to surrender to. That's the one I want to submit to. I want to submit to what it says here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, just as God is gracious and that cannot be changed, God is just. But in the, you could say, in this little, uh, I wouldn't want to use the word conflict because that's not the right way to describe it, but in this somewhat of a contradiction that God is absolutely just and absolutely gracious, what wins? Mercy. See, that's who God is. Mercy wins over justice. That's just not New Testament. God was showing that heart constantly through the whole Bible. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But in the cross, we can see that in a way we could never see it before. In a way an animal sacrifice could never do. In the building of a physical temple could never show us. In the keeping of a law of regulation could never teach us. None of those things could do what the cross does. It shows us mercy triumphing over judgment. That is the message of the, of the cross. Now it's interesting. When you think back to your conversion, to your baptism... How many, I see people smiling already, right? Doesn't a smile just kind of come to your face? Now how aware were you in the moment of your conversion of God's judgment? As you, you know, as you came, did, you did the sin study. You, you talked about why Jesus went to the cross. How aware were you? Pretty aware, right? In fact, it's safe to say, as much as you appreciated God's judgment... Connected to how much you appreciated His mercy. Whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And so in our conversion, guess what? We were acutely aware of God's judgment. But even more aware of His mercy. And see, that is how we began the Christian life. And believe it or not, that's all God wants to keep calling us back to. You'll never get any more forgiven than you were the day of your baptism. Not possible. There's, you know, now God's grace may keep pouring out over us because it's a flow. But you'll never be more forgiven. You'll never be more no condemned. You'll never be more not looking forward to punishment. That's, it'll never change. When you come into this relationship with God, you receive the blessings of His grace. And that's why this is the law of the Spirit of life that gives freedom, because it truly does. It's how we receive God's, God's grace Interesting as well, it's how we continue to receive it. You know, we start to think like, I don't really need God's grace anymore. I can, I can live my Christian life without it. Mercy. I didn't mean to put that together, but mercy, really. You know, like, it's just all messed up. It's all messed up. You know, we've defined 
what grace is, okay? No condemnation, no punishment, possible commendation, because that's a response of God to us. And then promises of blessing. Which you know how promises work. If you don't fulfill the conditions of them, you don't receive them. This isn't, I'm not talking about salvation here. Jesus already fulfilled that. We're talking about bonus here. And I want us to just think about this as we close. Grace motivates us. You know, there was a little boy living on the farm with his parents and, and uh, he just liked to, he used to skim these rocks on the pond. And so, uh, you know, one day he was just doing what he does and he was skimming rocks and the rock actually went further than he thought and one of his dad's prized ducks was sitting on the other side of the pond and that rock just went chink, 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 hit the duck in the head and he was dead. And there was a farmhand there that saw the kid do it and uh, the farmhand came over and said, boy, your dad's going to be mad. Your dad's going to be upset. You killed one of his prized ducks. I tell you what, we can go bury it and it'll be our secret. I'll protect you. So they took the duck, they buried it. You know, father noticed it was missing but never directed the, directly asked the son. But about three days later, this, the hired hand was, had a couple of chores to do and he saw the son doing nothing. Hey, come here. hey uh, could you help me with this? And the son goes, no, that's not my responsibility. I'm, I'm the son. You're the hired hand. He goes, yeah, but remember the duck? I'll tell your dad about the duck. And you know, this guy went on and on until this poor little kid was like the slave of the hired hand. And finally, little kid just couldn't take it anymore. So at the dinner table, they're talking and dad says, you know, it's really funny about the duck. And the son goes, I'm so sorry, I killed the duck. <laughs> and he explained to his dad what happened. And his dad said, oh, son, that's fine. I love you much more than the duck. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. You know, we can get motivated by a lot of wrong things. And before we were disciples, we had a lot of wrong things motivating us. Fear of punishment, that was pretty real. Anyone fear punishment? Yeah, okay. How about not being accepted? So to be accepted, we would do things. Didn't that drive us to try to do things? Even what we would call good things? What about significance? You know, to, to bring meaning into our lives. I need, you know, I need, we, we have these drives. How about guilt? Just feeling so burdened. Maybe if I do good. You know, there's whole world religion systems built, built on karma about your good deeds and your bad deeds being in some kind of balance. And that's a very human way of thinking we can easily fall into. But remember, in Christ, there's no condemnation and there's no punishment. But I do think there's something we need to understand. We've already talked about God commends us, right? God commends us. That means He's pleased with us. That's in real time right now. But if God can be pleased with what we do, what else does that mean? There's another side of this. He could be displeased. Now I think we've got to understand something here. 
Because God can be displeased with us and we're still no condemnation, no punishment. He just wants us to change whatever isn't pleasing Him. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, one of the things that gets said sometimes, it's true, there's no condemnation in Christ, but judgment is just as much a natural response of God's heart as grace. And so God does have an opinion, a moral valuation of how we live. Now if we're Christians living in His grace, punishment and, co- and condemnation, they've been taken off the table. That's not what we're talking about. And as, if as Christians we let punishment and condemnation be what we're thinking about and worried about, we're focused on the wrong thing. See, what there is in Christ, there's still judgment but without condemnation. God still has an opinion. What would be best for me to do? What pleases Him? 1 Corinthians 3.15 talks about the guy who built not with precious, not with gold, silver, or precious stones, but with straw and wheat and these kind of things. And it says, nothing he built survived, but he was saved. You can actually be saved without commendation. Though I think whatever you went through to accept the gospel already would receive God's commendation. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is sometimes we think, oh, God's not happy with me right now. I'm not saved. That's not what it means. Because we need to be seeking His His will. His perfect and pleasing will. It's also, you know... We think, well, I shouldn't feel any guilt because I'm in grace. No, that's not exactly true either. Guilt is what your own conscience tells you about what you do. You shouldn't be burdened by guilt when you're in God's grace. Guilt shouldn't be a burden. Actually, the Bible really makes it clear. What should guilt look like for a disciple of Jesus? Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8. Start in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7. Start in verse 8. It says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it. And what caused them sorrow? Well, he corrected them on a few things. There's a few things going on in Corinth that weren't right. He said, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, we'll still feel guilty, but we need to translate that into godly sorrow. What we need to think about is, what I did was displeasing to God, but not think about, oh, I might lose my salvation, or oh, maybe punishment's coming, or condemnation. That's not what's happening. But we we are convicted in our hearts. Here's a better course. Here's what I need to do. And that's what repentance is. It's simply a conforming to God's thinking. It's a changing in our hearts. 
And I say this because there's only two kinds of people who don't feel any guilt. Perfect people and people with, with seared consciences. So the conscience doesn't tell them anything. Guilt is the normal, it's, it's a God-given response to sin in our own hearts. But we shouldn't be burdened by guilt. See, what's interesting is in grace, there's judgment without condemnation. And there's guilt uh, without burden. It's not meant to be a burden. It's just, it's a state. And you deal with it. You look at it from God's point of view. The godly sorrow will lead you there. See, we talked about what is grace? How does it manifest to us? God's judgment is triumphed over by His mercy. And see, that's what made us brilliantly happy the day we were baptized. And it's what should keep us brilliantly happy today. I don't know what we've been able to do or not do today. It doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no punishment. Judgment still exists in the sense that God has some thoughts about what is best for us to do. We need to seek His will and try to please Him. But we're not talking here about eternal consequences. That's been sorted already in Jesus Christ. And then we're talking about just... Uh, getting rid of, of guilt. The right way to deal with guilt, confess your sins one to another, pray for each other, and you'll be healed. Just just get it, get it done. I mean, it worked in our baptisms. It still works today. I bring this up simply because our motivations become confused. You know, I want to I commend John York to, in front of everybody. Um... John's been trying to get some thoughts over to me that I just haven't quite picked up on. And, and I do think perspective is there. It's experience. It's kind of how you look at things. I, I listen often. I think, aren't we saying the same thing? But John's pointed out to me, and I, and I think this is fair. There are people's hearts that just aren't feeling the grace. They're feeling burdened. They're feeling afraid. And I want to say, if I've done anything in my preaching to make you feel that way, I'm sorry. That's absolutely not what I want to do. I mean, I, I don't want anyone to feel burdened. And the, here would be the greatest crime. I don't. Like, like I don't feel burdened. I, I, I'm not afraid. I, you know, for, since my baptism, I've never felt the fire of hell. I've never worried about that flame. It's just never been part of my... my I'm facing the other direction. But I realize that just because I think that myself and make that as an assumption doesn't mean everyone's getting it. And I think we have people who get it completely. But I think we also need to understand not everybody's getting it and we need to all get it. We, we need to all get this. There's only one perfect motivation to living the Christian life and that is a response to the grace of God. That's the only right motivation there is. Anything else is less and even becomes in danger of distorting the message of Christ. And so what we're promised in Christ is something amazing. No condemnation. No punishment. If there is judgment, it's without condemnation. If there's guilt, it's without burden. God doesn't want us to be motivated by those things. 
But I don't want us to live deceitfully either and think, well, God doesn't have an opinion about what we should be doing. And my guilt, it's something wrong. I shouldn't feel any guilt whatsoever. No, your guilt is your own conscience. Adam and Eve separated themselves from God. They did that. God didn't say, okay, you go in the naughty jungle now. Go into the trees. You can't come out to your good. That's not what God said. God said, will you stop hiding? Come out and I will clothe you. I will accept you. He said the same thing to Cain. That's been God's message all along. But He had to give us the cross because we would never understand what it costs Him. What was it like for the God of justice to watch His Son die? I tell you, something more powerful was in play that day. And that was the mercy of God. It was His love for us. And He always knew that's what it would cost Him. You know, we've been having some readings, some lessons talking about corporate repentance this month. You know, one thing we want to do is just... It's saying corporate, because rather than go individual repentance, let's just all change together. And I'm very excited. We've got now, on the speaker behind Justin, we've got portable communion cups. And this is something we're going to be offering every Sunday. You know people in your family group, people that had to work, people that, you know, that missed breaking bread with us today. And I want to encourage you to take the cup with to them. And there's a little wafer in the top. It's like it's it's kind of for picnics outdoor, big assemblies. But every week we'll have that there. And we can think, well, why isn't that person here? You know, the Bible says, let us give up not meeting together. That isn't just talking about them, that's us too. If they've given up meeting with us, that doesn't mean we should give up meeting with them. Because that's, that's the dire consequence. Most, most people absolutely are missing because they're ill, they have work, they have, you know, it's just life pressures. Take them, break bread with them. Share with them a little bit about the worship today. And just enjoy some fellowship. Because we don't want anyone to miss out on what God has given. You know, we are saved by grace. It is absolutely an unchangeable character of God. We don't have anything to do with who God is. But we are the ultimate recipients of the greatest gift that we know God ever made. And that was His Son on a cross. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up and takes their place. Our Father and God, we thank You so much that we could just spend this time together worshiping You, singing songs of praise. And Father, we are humbled by Your love for us. Father, help us to respond to that love each day just in gratefulness and eagerness to really be a people created to do good works to bring You glory. Father, thank You for what You've done in our lives up to this point. Thank You for making up for not just what is lacking, but giving us so much more. Father, we just thank You that You love us and we're willing to send Your Son to die for us. Please bless us through this week. Be with anyone who's not able to be with us. Be with those who are traveling back from London today. Father, just we ask that we can live in Your grace, in Your blessing, in Your love. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.